1: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com guest. On this episode of the Be Here Now Network's guest podcast, Gil Fronsdahl examines the Buddhist teaching that says nothing needs to be done. Attachment comes in many flavors. Even as we begin to ease our clinging, our expectations and judgments in the moment still control us. Gil explores how practice allows us to move away from this and begin to appreciate that nothing needs to be done. Nothing needs to be done. There's something very, very meaningful and profound, significant about that little teaching, that saying... Nothing needs to be done. And you probably, some of you, are already protesting. He doesn't understand me, my needs, my situation, what's going on. But rather than protesting, I know that there are needs, I know there are things to be done, and and many of you have done wonderful things here. But there is something about very, very, to point to the possibility, to that nothing needs to be done. And for me to show up needing to give a talk, there's a little bit of a problem. I shouldn't have a need to give a talk. I don't actually want to give a talk today. I'm happy to talk. I can talk. But I think there's something, even even wanting to give a talk is too much. In this place of integrity, in this place of being whole, in this place of just being. You know, there's no need to reach forward and want anything to happen. It did go through my mind in thinking about this talk. I don't have anything to talk about, and if I don't figure out something really good, these people are not going to like me. You know, my whole stake as a teacher is at stake now. I better save this talk quickly. But that's not Dharma. <clears throat> there might be more Dharma in giving a boring talk, in giving one that's you know really engaging for you. It might be a, a, a better talk for you, for you to notice maybe you're leaning forward, hoping to get something and wanting something and wanting something interesting, or you put a lot of expectation and hope in the talk, and to see that leaning forward, to feel see that expectation, to see the judgments that come up. Living in judgments. Oh, you know, John's talk yesterday was great and Gil's falling flat. <laughs> 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 you know, so it's great to give a flat talk because then you get to look at those judgments and what goes on with you. Nothing needs to happen. Many years ago, there used to be a sign, down. maybe some of you remember it, maybe down in the dining room, that said, um, from the cooks, and it said... Our practice is to make the best food for you we can. Your practice is when we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing needs to happen. How is that meaningful? How that how's that a really significant teaching uh, truth? Do you know how well do you know you're leaning forward, your wanting, your expectations, your measurements, your comparisons? What is it that goes on when your heart is not at rest in itself? A heart that's at rest in itself doesn't need anything. It's just it's here, we're here. And what's it like just to share that and just be? And then, you know, it's a little bit, you know I thought about somehow mentioning these things this talk, and I thought, that's going to be interesting. To see if like how will I be, with ninety people looking at me, expecting something. It's it's quite something, you know. Conventionally, like you're supposed to get nervous or perform or do something, not waste (laughs) not waste your time. But I think that I think it's nothing needs to happen. You don't have to attain anything. You don't have to understand anything. You don't have to go home with anything. You don't have to compare it to anything. Just here we are, so simple. It's so simple that maybe it's too simple to appreciate. Maybe it's so simple that it can't be ultimate. You know we're, after all, Buddhism, you know, is one of the great world religions. So it has to have something much better than this. Here we are, it's just present, simple. <clears throat> this guy saying nothing needs to happen. And he's supposed to represent Buddhism, this great world religion at the pinnacle of one of the great Buddhist retreats of the year. The pressure. <laughs> Here we are. Simple. Can it really be this simple? I think that uh, one of the ways I could give a good talk today is if I um, disenchanted you from Buddhism. That would be good. Because if you're enchanted, if you're in illusion about Buddhism, you got to, The bubble has to pop at some point. And, you know, it's kind of hard. You know, when I was in Japan at the Zen monastery, I was still, I'll, I'll go back a little bit further. Some of you heard this story. When I was a, kind of a new Zen student <clears throat> going to college, there was a small Zen group that met in someone's little bedroom twice a week. And I'd go over Tuesday and Thursday evenings to go sit zazen. And it was a small enough bedroom that I think it only had room for four people. Because, But we sat facing the wall in Zen with the eyes open. And um, so I was kind of enthusiastic and I was like, Zen was a great thing, right? And so I went, um, I sat down one day to cross-legged on the floor facing the wall with the eyes open. And then uh, right in front of me there arose this majestic, big, authoritative Roman column. And uh, like you have in front of banks, you know that they're solid, serious. And written down on the, engraved, with painted black letters on this column were the letters Z, E, N. And so the next thing that happened was that I went to embrace this column, the Zen column. And as I embraced it, it disappeared and my head fell against the wall of the (laughs) (laughs) bedroom. So, So that got my attention. And what I, what I thought when I realized was that I had created Zen as this great thing outside of me that I was going to get, take hold of, support me or something, something out there, study Zen. <clears throat> and then I said, that doesn't make sense. And what I need to do is study myself, you know, show up here. So I kind of stopped that kind of, sorry, I lowered, I lessened that kind of projection, this great world religion of Zen. It's going to do it for me. But the next uh, kind of step in that regard was I was in, I went to practice in a monastery, Zen monastery in Japan. And um, I was there for five months. I did a during that time I did a three month retreat. And in the middle of the retreat, I realized that um, this was not the right place for me. That somehow the practice was and my in me weren't aligned. It wasn't, it wasn't just, and that um, <clears throat> and there was a big thing set for me, because I still kind of held Zen and the, the abbot and the, this big monastery and this great big wonderful abstraction of Zen Buddhism as being a, you know, somehow as all this authority. That who could little old me decide that this was not right for me and to leave. And it was a big big moment for me where I said, I, said, I, you know, I know, I'm not going to live under the weight of this big authority. And I know, I know for me, I said, I'm going to leave. And that was, a, for me, it was a big step to stand up for myself in that kind of way. I didn't end up leaving because after I made that decision, I remembered that I was there in the monastery. Um, for, for, there was a Japanese friend, a monk friend of mine, who had to get, for me, get to me into the monastery? He had to put his—he had to ask to get me in. And so his whole reputation in Japanese Zen circles was contingent upon me finishing. And so as soon as I made the decision that I could leave, then it became okay to stay for him. So I stay, I finished the period. But there is no Buddhism, you know. There absolutely is no Buddhism. I have a PhD in Buddhism, so I have the authority to tell you.
0: <laughs> there
1: was a time the Buddha taught before there was Buddhism. Buddhism is kind of like a religion, or is a religion. It comes with all the trappings and all the complexity of religion. But there was a time when the Buddha probably was first teaching when you couldn't really call it a religion. And the, probably the record of that time of his teaching is in a book, uh, what most scholars think is the earliest teachings of Buddhism. It's a little book uh, uh, called, the, it's called the Book of Eights, the Atagavaga. It's one of my favorite uh, teachings from that ancient time because it uh, shows a path to peace that uh, doesn't need religion. And what does that look like? Uh, One of the things is that it held up as the goal to attain peace, to be peaceful, or to be calm, or to have equanimity. But peace, over and over again, is the primary kind of way. It talks about the goal of practice, the goal. of. And what's significant about that is that peace is something that's relatively ordinary. And that ordinary people can understand. If you go and tell your neighbors, you know, I, you know, I went to Spirit Rock to attain Nirvana. That just like, what? You know, that's nice. But what is that? And um, but if you say you came to become, you became peaceful. Most people in your in your community and life can probably appreciate. Oh, that's nice. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of Buddhist language, Buddhist ideals of what you can attain. You go to your neighbor and say, How was that like? Oh, you know, I hung out in the 17th jhana. <laughs> you know, and they scratched their head, and, you know, that's nice. You know, it's nice, I guess. Um, but in this early body of literature, there was no jhana discussed. There was no... Um, um, none, none of the, You're happy to note that none of the lists were, pre- were presented. Teachings were presented without lists. And the goal was just to be peaceful, simple. Why isn't that enough? Why does that? Why does? Why does there have to be more than that? If you attain the seventeenth jhana, you know we'll give you the badge. You can go home. You can go home and you know show people the badge, and you know, and it's reassuring to have the badge because then you know you've accomplished something important, and you have a place in the world. Peace is like, peace is so ordinary and. Peace is probably boring anyway. You don't get a lot of status for peace. You know, just I, mean, I went to Spared Rock and I was peaceful. That was nice, but well, your neighbor said, "Well, I went to Bali." <laughs> 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 you know, they they can one up you pretty easily. with all you all you had was peace. But anyway, since so earliest tradition, the goal of the Spiritual life was was uh, explained as being peace, to be peaceful. Very ordinary. And one of the things that this text repeatedly talks about, uh, to attain, the primary way to attain peace, is to let go of clinging. To let go of grasping. Over and over again, in many ways it talks about that. And there's a movement to let go of clinging is really, you know... Is very interesting because it's just a, you can see it almost as a psychological thing in the mind. The mind doesn't hold anymore. The the, the fist holds tight and then lets go. There's not much religion in that. And one of the things that uh, talks about in this early text a lot, also one of the primary themes, is letting go of um, views, but they mean the context there is doctrine, religious doctrines. Don't hold on to any kind of view, and it says, and particularly it says, don't hold on, don't rely on any view for what is ultimate. And as you probably know, most religions, including Buddhism, has some idea of what's ultimate. You know, the ultimate state of consciousness, the ultimate experience of Nirvana, the ultimate state of awareness, the ultimate. You know, we have the ultimate, and the big. I you don't know if you know this, but the big debate in our kind of scene about what's the most ultimate is divided up between the Burmese idea of nirvana and the Thai idea of nirvana. So, you know, the Thais say the Burmese don't have it right, we have the ultimate. The Burmese say the Thais don't have it, we have the ultimate. And those of us in America just scratch our head and how do we decide between these two? You know, Because they're kind of like our teachers, right? The Thais and the Burmese. What is ultimate? This idea of the ultimate but in this earliest text, it says, "Don't bother with pursuing what's ultimate. Don't measure and don't don't argue with anybody about their doctrine. Don't hold up your teaching as higher than anybody else. Don't be concerned with higher or lower. That's quite a radical thing to say in a world of religion where kind of the currency of many religions, maybe in the is often a one-upmanship where have, we have it. We know it's ultimate. You get a lot of security knowing that you have the ultimate truth, knowing you have the ultimate teachings, knowing that you have the right thing, knowing that you're, you know, know, there's a a lot of personal benefits that come from feeling connected. But all those personal benefits, this early text says, does not provide peace. That peace is unstable. And if you want a stable peace, you don't find it through any views, and you don't find it through any experiences. And it's even more radical. It also says, and be careful now, don't take it too literally, but it's very, very I think it's very radical. It says it's also not found in, um, in uh, the word is sila vata sila bata, through sila, virtues or ethics or precepts. And it's not, and vata means religious observances or religious practices. So what is that about? Is there a month of religious practice here. It's not found in practices. So many of the things that we cling to and want, you know, be the answer. It says, not there, not there, not there. And the answer that this text offers is let go of clinging let go of clinging. And it does talk about training for that purpose. But what's very interesting about the training is it's very ordinary in that the, the path to the goal of being peaceful is to start being peaceful. Isn't that kind of nice? If you want to be peaceful, start being peaceful. <clears throat> it says, if you want to let go of clinging, start loosening up your grasp on things. Not that you can let go all at once, but start loosening up. There's something about in this text that the the goal and the means are, are, are connected and aligned. They're not two different things. So if you want to be peaceful, you have to kind of start living a peaceful life. If you want to be generous, you start living a generous life. If you want to try to be let go of clinging, you have to begin loosening up a little bit what goes on. And so there's no need for Buddhism because in this early period of the Buddhist teachings. There's no religious doctrine that's held up as being the best. There's no religious practices that's held up. There's no, um, it just, it's just such a direct, direct way to just. And the sage, the, the, the person who attains the goal in this early text is not called an arhat. It's not called a stream enterer or once returner or non returner. These are such complicated ideas, and people tie themselves in knots around these things. It's just called a sage, a muni, a wise person. And what the text says a wise person, how it makes a wise person wise in this text is that they know. They are wise about how people get caught. They understand the entanglements, they understand greed, they understand ill will, they understand all these things. That's what, that's what makes a person wise. And if that's what makes you wise, you've got to study those things. That's the bad news. And so you've got to look for opportunities. So you become wise at the entanglements understand it well, so that you can let go. So I present this to you, this very early teachings of the Buddha, the earliest teachings we maybe have. Uh, not so much that you, partly I present, so you to kind of free you from Buddhism. Maybe you don't need Buddhism. Maybe you, some of you have been involved for a long time. And if you're like me, you've probably, you probably have some suffering connected to Buddhism. Measuring yourself, thinking you have to kind of live up to certain Buddhist standards, wanting certain attainments that Buddhism holds up as being really important, and you have to get this attainment. Otherwise, you know, and what's also what's, you know, the, the stream entry is really good if you want to go stream entry, because then you only come back for seven more lifetimes, and then you're, you, have it, you know, you have it made, you can relax, <laughs> you can coast. It can't be that bad. Seven lifetimes, and maybe it's true. Maybe it's, I mean, it's great these things. But uh, what's what? I, I very meaningful for me. This early tradition, the earliest literature, doesn't have any notion like that. In fact, this early tradition says um, that a person who is wise doesn't concern themselves with other lives, rebirth, and all those things. It's not a relevant topic. Peace. Peace. Would you rather be at peace or be a stream mentor? (laughs) That's a tough one, huh? (laughs) I've known people who have been certified as stream mentors in Burma. (laughs) And they ended up not being so happy, not being so at peace. So, you know, are these things kind of over? Maybe, maybe it wasn't really stream entry. Maybe it was something else, but was it overvalued? But when you value peace, that's a wonderful teacher. It's a fantastic teacher because, it, you know, it's clear if you're peaceful or not peaceful, at ease. I like the word ease a lot. I love the word ease, to be at ease. The word, one of the words in Pali for reassurance, to be reassured, is to breathe easily. The literal the little meanings of the word, breathe easily. So to come, live a life where we, are, we can breathe at ease, or if we breathe easily, we're at peace. And so this wonderful slogan, nothing needs to happen, is a powerful, wonderful teacher to carry with you. Just drop that in at different times. Nothing needs to. Gill says nothing needs to happen, and then you use that. Look around the situation you're in, and is it true? Maybe it's not true, but maybe it's more true more often than you realize. So, so nothing has to happen. Make space. So those of you who saw me during the practice discussions should consider yourself very lucky that I have this view sometimes and nothing needs to happen. <laughs> <laughs> because it saved, it saved you from getting long Dharma talks. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> I know what to tell you. No, nothing needs to happen. It's good. It's really great. And, and, it's like, I, and then I can meet you and see you and listen more fully and be present. And hopefully that was the case didn't happen this retreat, but there's been plenty of times where um, I thought I really knew what I had to tell someone, what was really important to say, and I held my tongue. And the person had much wiser things to say than I did. I was so glad I didn't speak. So nothing needs to happen. So many times, by pausing and waiting... Giving the situation, the, chance, the situation a chance, something reveals itself, something comes out that wouldn't have happened if we rushed ahead with our desires, expectations, wants, aversions, resistance. Nothing needs to happen, give space for something to emerge. And this is one of the things that has been very important for me, and I hope for many other, many of you. If this, this experience of simplicity, of being at peace with how things are, nothing needs to happen, just here in a simple way, is relevant, is valuable, feels right, has integrity, feels whole, feels something. On one side of that, if it's, that's a divide, on one side of the divide is the old way where we do things maybe out of obligation, out of fear, out of greed, out of aversion to how things are. We're kind of kind of churning and going, and we know we want, we figure things out. It has to do with our ego, our self-identity, being someone in the world, and building it up, and shoring ourselves up, or apologizing for ourselves, or defending ourselves, and all this stuff. And it has a lot to do with controlling, wanting to be in control, wanting to prove ourselves, wanting to get what we want, take care of ourselves. It's a whole constellation of things we do. At the other side, nothing needs to happen just to be. You're not going to be a couch potato. You're not going to just kind of become a blob and do nothing. And I can prove it to you. Just try it try just, we can start the experiment now, and just sit here. And I pretty much guarantee that very few of you are going to sit here until you pee in your pants. Anyway, Spirit Rock wouldn't appreciate it. <laughs> but at some point, you'll feel motivated. You know, <laughs> a particular kind of wholesome and appropriate biological desire will emerge. <laughs> and it'll feel right to just to follow that. It wasn't like you were planning, you know, you weren't sitting here planning and thinking of the right time and, and just the right way to pee to make an impression. And, <laughs> You know, and you're doing all this, you know, you just, you know, time to go. (laughs) So the other side of nothing needs to happen to sit and be at peace and not try to control, not to live out of the usual sense of, I need, and I want, and I have to have, and I have to do all this stuff. The other side is to a wonderful expression, I'm not sure who coined it, maybe Gregory Kramer, Uh, trust emergence, trust what arises, and it's hard to trust one's heart, trust without controlling, trust without having everything planned ahead, and know what you expect, and it's hard you know, not to you know, show up and know you're going to make a good impression. But to trust what emerges comes. And if nothing comes, trust that. Just like, you know, you, you know, most of us can trust that when we feel the urge to pee, we know it's time to go. There's something very profound and wonderful about being able to trust your own heart, your own mind. Like after you give space to it, after you listen quiet, see what see what wants to emerge, and then to know, have confidence that you can take care of yourself that way. That you can take you know that you you're safe. You can know you have the street smarts. You know how to speak, how to act, how to say no, how to say yes. Uh, if you trust the emergence. What is it that's in you? Do you have to prepare? Do you have to control? No. one of the reasons why no is maybe many times, many circumstances, you don't have to speak. You don't have to do anything. Nothing needs to happen. I really don't have to give a good Dharma talk. In some ways, I'd feel very sad, I think, if I spend a lot of time preparing a talk so that it would be a great Dharma talk and get those that's not what we're here for. The trust emergence, what comes, what is here? And I would just strongly encourage you to experiment with that. Find safe places in your life where you can try and just do, just don't show up with preparations, don't show up with being someone, don't think you have to prove anything. And just kind of sit quietly and wait until some, something moves inside your heart, your mind. That needs to be said, needs to be done. And then be mindful, pay attention, learn from that. Pay attention to what happens as you do it. Be alert to what the impact it has on others, the impact it has on you. Get the feedback so that, that the merging, what you, you know, it's a feedback loop with the world. And so you kind of learn from what you do, learn to see what's best to come out next. Trust emergence, and you find out you talk non-stop after a retreat it happens sometimes. You can't stop talking to you probably. And you start noticing, you're mindful, so you notice the person you're talking to, their eyes are glazing over. <laughs> <laughs> and so then trusting emergence says, I think I better stop. <coughs> anyway, it's very, I think this idea, so there's nothing needs to happen or, or say differently. They're just being deeply at peace here and now with how things are, with yourself, or you differently, say differently, maybe more more into, to the heart of the matter, is to live in such a way that our, we're not motivated by greed, hate, fear, building an identity, protecting identity, hiding who we are, closing down, all these places we suffer. Putting all these down, and then the other side of that is trust trust emergence. Trust what comes, and explore that. You have to develop some street smarts. It's not automatic. It's not like you're going to float on a cloud. It's not like you can trust. Like everything that emerges is going to be perfect. It's not going to be that way. But uh, trust emergence means you're willing to let it come forward so you can learn about it. You know, sometimes it's great to be in conflict with people. And and uh, because sometimes it's great to speak what's what you believe, so you can learn that it's wrong. (laughs) You know, I've done many times where you know talking to you know I have some some belief that I'm carrying with me some idea I think I'm right or something, and I can carry it in my own mind for a long time, but if I talk to a friend about it and hear myself say it, oh, oh, this doesn't sound right anymore. So trust emergence. You don't have to worry so much. But you don't have to be trust emergence means you don't have to be perfect. You're you're a work in progress. It's okay to make mistakes. It's really okay. I love it that the really good baseball players fail two thirds of the time at bat. Isn't that great? The very best baseball players fail two-thirds of the time. It's okay. This trust emergence means it's okay to make mistakes and learn from it and learn what you have to do as a result. Otherwise we can't really learn. I don't think you really learn the deepest things you need to learn unless you're willing to make mistakes. So this divide, there's a tipping point I think it happens in practice at some point, and the tipping point is to, where the gravitational force of non-clinging becomes stronger than the gravitational force of clinging. And it comes and goes, but there comes sometimes a point where you feel like you're at that tipping point, or you've crossed the tipping point, and you feel, and you can really there's a, there's a palpable feeling of sense or of what non-clinging is, and you can feel the pull, you feel the rightness of it. Whereas, before that tipping point, you might know that clinging caused suffering and you know that the task is to let go, and so you practice and develop yourself and develop concentration, all the things that support that. And at some point you come to that tipping point and the pull, the gravitational pull of clinging is weak enough that the gravitational pull of non-clinging, of peace, becomes stronger. So then I'll end with um, a teaching that I heard in Zen circles many years ago. That in Zen, there are only two things, two practices. There is meditation, and then sweeping the temple courtyard. But the temple courtyard doesn't stop at the temple gate. It's the whole world. It's only two things. Practicing to be at peace. Practicing to be, have this integrity, this wholeness, just to be. Practicing to let go of the clinging. Practicing to understand it, to let go of it. And then, with whatever modicum of ease or peace that we have, we enter into the world to take care of it. We sweep, we sweep the temple grounds. There's a beautiful uh, uh, teaching, it's done repeatedly in Zen, Japanese Zen circles, where they uh, talk about the moon and the dewdrop. The moon is kind of meant to be the symbol of enlightenment. And the dewdrop is a symbol of impermanence, something so ephemeral. The d- dew drop, just as soon as the sun comes out, evaporates. But even in the dew drop, you can, right there is awakening, perfection, something. It's a beautiful image, I think. But we're, we're in a world now where there's another image which is, I think, maybe just as important to remember. And that is the world in a teardrop. The world in a teardrop. Because I think, you know, there's tears in the way the world is. The moon in the dewdrop is to sit, when the dewdrop is to just be, and nothing needs to happen. The earth in the teardrop is sweeping the temple grounds, but understanding it's the whole world we want to care for. But to do it from that place, after the, when it, beyond the tipping point of greed, hate, and delusion, to do it from the tipping point of non-clinging, It's to do it from where there's no obligation. Buddhism offers, requires absolutely no obligation. Buddhism is not a kind of religion that says you're obligated to act or be any kind of way. Because we can trust that if we really let go of what the barriers we have in our heart to really connect to the world and be here, we can trust what emerges. And each of us, the emergence will look different for each person. And there's so many different ways of sweeping the temple. So many different ways. And uh, people can do very, very different things in the world. So we'll see what comes out of you. If you trust your emergence, trust there's no obligation, there's nothing you have to do. to be at ease, at peace. And if you want to be a wise person, then uh, you study how you lose your ease. Be interested in how you lose your ease. If you understand how you lose your ease, then you have a better chance of staying at ease, of breathing easily. And it's so simple as a reference point that you can even use your breathing as a reference point for this. Notice how you're breathing. Is your breath at ease? And if it's not at ease, why? For what are you willing to sacrifice your ease? For What are you willing to sacrifice your ease? What is more important than your peace? And one of the answers that uh, that comes up for people is that um, it's worth sacrificing your ease, your peace, so you can worry. Right? I mean, I mean that's like that's the obvious answer that most people get, <laughs> given how much worry there is. So I offer you this, these words tonight. I offer them out of tremendous respect for you. And I'm hoping that uh, pointing to this idea that nothing needs to happen, pointing to the simplicity of just being at peace with how things are, pointing to the very important practice of studying how we lose our peace, that this is something you can take in and and, uh, reflect on and maybe something that, uh, that will ring just true enough that you can be nourished by it or be informed by it or inspired by it or, or help you understand something uh, that you would maybe normally wouldn't understand, but you have this vantage point right now that gives a different perspective on this. Nothing needs to happen.